Grace and peace to you all, and welcome to the Calvary Road with Pastor Sam Allen. And I like that Naomi gets it. She says, hey, you can rest because he's not gonna. You can relax because you can bet he's gonna get this done. And I'm reminded that that's how our Lord was and continues to be with us. He would never rest until our redemption was assured. And he continues to pray daily, making intercession for us until it's complete, until we stand before him. Boaz had prayed for Ruth, asking that she would be richly blessed by the Lord, under whose wings she had come to take refuge. Now she is asking Boaz to be the one whom the Lord will use to do just that. Let's join Pastor Sam as he finishes Ruth chapter 3 and see what happens. Jesus, who John tells us always was, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and God was the Word. Jesus pre-existed all creation. Anyone who teaches that he is a created being is missing the clear teaching of scripture. He didn't become, he always was. He was there face to face in perfect fellowship with the Father before anything. All things were made by him and for him. We learn in Colossians, John tells us the same thing. Nothing came into being that didn't come through him. So he had to, in order to redeem us, to be our kinsman redeemer, well, he had to, first of all, become one of us. It wasn't possible for him to redeem us without first becoming one of us. So what we see at Boaz, he's related. He's related to the family. Now, that's interesting to, to think this through because He's not actually related to her at this point in any way. So unlike her, she's a Moabitess. He's a Jew. He, he's Israeli. And, and, and she marries in, but now her husband's dead. So there's no physical tie. But he's related to the deceased. And that's the connection, you see. And so in order for him to redeem her, he had to be related to her. That explains to us why Jesus became one of us. Then he had to be willing to pay the price of redemption. And certainly he's that. He's like, we're going to read it in a minute. He's not only willing, he's excited. He can't wait. In fact, it's going to all work out by tomorrow. And you won't have to wait to find out how it all turns out. If you haven't already read just four chapters, we're in the third, not right now, but when you get home or before you go to bed or in the morning, you want to read the rest of the story. But, but the bottom line is willing to pay the price. Our Lord, by the way, and you should know this, said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down, how? Willingly, yeah, lots of you said it. Lots of you know it. And we want to all be sure of it. He became one of us so that he could be our kinsman redeemer. And then he was willing to pay the price of our redemption, even as Boaz is willing to pay the price of her redemption. And then the third thing, and this is an essential, you had to be able to pay the price. See, it's one thing. If you were to come and say, man, I've got myself in a real mess. Will you bail me out? I hope you don't mean that literally. I mean, of course, you're not even saying it. It's just an illustration. So, so, but if you're like, I've got myself in a mess, will you bail me out? I'd say, well, sure, I'd be happy to. And you're like, the bail's 10,000. Well, now we have a problem. 
because I'm willing, but I'm not able. Why? I don't have that kind of money, you see. And when it comes to willingness, well, lots of us would be willing. Most of us, I would think, hopefully all of us would be willing to die for our own kids. I mean, we'd lay down our life so they could live. We understand the heart of a parent, of a father. But the problem is, I couldn't die for my son's sins because it was a perfect couple that sinned in the garden. When Adam and Eve sinned, they had been created in the image of God. They were perfect. They were sinless. They were in fellowship with him. And when they sinned, it was perfection that turned and fell. In order for us to be redeemed, well, Jesus had to not only be willing to pay the price, he had to be able. And it would take another perfect, sinless man to do what, well, a sinless man had done in the first place. The first Adam sold us into sin. And we were born in sin. The second or last Adam, as he is called, our Lord and Savior Jesus, not only willing to pay the price, but able to pay the price of our redemption. Now, when you see this, it just opens up some wonderful things when we understand the reason for his incarnation, when we see his willingness and then we understand, well, his death for us, it was the only way I could be redeemed. Are we sure about that? I sure hope you are. Because if there were any other way, if it were possible for somebody to redeem themselves through the law or through good works or through religion or affiliation, don't miss it. Jesus then would have died in vain. He prayed, if there's any other way, let this cup pass. But the cup didn't pass. He went to the cross, he suffered, he died, he bled. And without the shedding of blood, we know there's no remission of sin. Well, all of that to say this, even as Boaz is motivated not by the law, but by love, our Lord was motivated by love for us. Well, then he said, back in our story, verse 10, Blessed are you of the Lord, my daughter, for you have shown more kindness at the end than at the beginning, and that you did not go after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you request. For all the people of my town know that you are a virtuous woman. Now it is true that I am a close relative. However, there's a relative closer than I. There's a little monkey wrench here. He says, stay this night and in the morning it'll be if he will perform the duty of a close relative or kinsman redeemer. Good, let him do it. I don't think he really means good, but I think he's like, I'll have to go with it. But if he does not want to perform the duty for you, then I will perform the duty for you. As the Lord lives, lie down until morning. Now, there's no doubt he loved her. And there's no doubt he loved her first. We find her, though, praising her. Or we find him, excuse me, praising her for choosing him instead of seeking her peace and prosperity other places or elsewhere. He just says, man, you could have gone after, I mean, 
you know, you could go after the young guys, you could go after a rich guy, you could go after a poor guy. The idea being, well, she is coming and asking him to do what, well, probably lots of guys would have been willing to do if it were up to them. Something else, though, he calls her a virtuous woman. And you don't find that terminology a lot in Scripture, but, but he declares his desire to make her his bride. And this word virtuous, the Hebrew word translated virtuous, it appears three times here in the book of Ruth. It actually is the word that was translated wealthy in reference to Boaz back in chapter 2, verse 1. I find that intriguing. It said that he was a wealthy man, but it's the same word that's translated virtuous here. And what I'm thinking is that, well, true riches... Well, if I were to say, hey, this guy's really rich, we immediately think of, you know, money and possessions and stuff. But riches, well, in God's economy, they may include or even be more uh, important to, to say a good name or a good reputation. Great riches in the sight of God, in God's economy of great value. And what he's saying when he says she's virtuous, she had a good reputation among the people. Everyone in town knew. Everyone had respect for her. Everyone knew she was a virtuous woman. And so he's called virtuous, but they translate it wealthy. She's called virtuous, and they translate it virtuous. And then in 4.11, says, All the people who were at the gate and the elders said, and we'll get to this next time. We're witnesses. The Lord make the woman who is coming to your house like Rachel and Leah, the two who built the house of Israel, that you may prosper. There's our word virtuous. So again, he's saying that you may prosper in Ephatra and be famous in Bethlehem. Now here's the cool thing. Prosper like Rachel and Leah. Here the idea of virtue is tied to productivity, to bearing lots of children, to having a lot of offspring, to producing something that continues after you're gone. Now, virtuous, I love it. They prayed for her to become great and prosperous, fruitful like Rachel and Leah. You may know, maybe you do, that Proverbs 31 describes the virtuous woman for us. Let me read you just a couple verses of it. I was telling Kevin, I read this and I think, man, this is describing Pam. And, and I got to tell you, his wife, Kristen, as well. I'm not saying they're perfect, but I see all of these characteristics in them. Who can find a virtuous wife? It's Proverbs 31.10. Her worth is far above rubies. The heart of her husband safely trusts in her. She'll have no lack of grain. She does him good and not evil all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and willingly works with her hands. She is like the merchant ships, bringing her food from afar, rising while it's night, providing food for her household, a portion for her maidservants. She considers a field and buys it. From her profit, she plants a vineyard. She girds herself with strength, strengthens her arms. She perceives her merchandise is good, and her lamp does not go out by night. 
the description, and it goes on and on, and I'd encourage you to read it later. It concludes like this. Many daughters have done well, but you excel them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is passing, but a woman who fears the Lord shall be praised. Give her the fruit of her hands and let her own works praise her in the gates. This is God's plan for a wife. And if you want to know, what God would have you be like if you're young and you're thinking of getting married, well, you want to know this would be the ideal wife. Now, not everything that he says about her is going to be literal in your life. You may not sow or you may not buy fields, but the idea is she's she's productive and she's watching out and caring for. She's putting others first and everything said about her can be. And I'm sure most of this or a lot of it's true of many of you, but it can be true of all. Well, back to our passage, chapter 3, verse 14. So she lay at his feet until morning and arose before anyone could recognize another. Then he said, do not let it be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. Now he's just expressing his concern for her reputation here. She hadn't done anything immoral or unseemly, but, but he knows that, well, if this other guy decides that he's going to claim her and take the land and marry her and raise up offspring for, well, her deceased husband, well, he doesn't want anything to taint the wonderful reputation she already has among the people. So he's saying, just kind of keep this quiet. Get out of here quietly. Also, he said, bring the shawl that is on you and hold it. And when she held it, he measured six ephahs of barley and laid it on her, and she went into the city. And when she'd come to her mother-in-law, she said, is that you, my daughter? And she told her all the man had done for her, and she said, these six ephahs of barley he gave me. And he said to me, do not go empty handed to your mother-in-law. And then she said, sit still, my daughter, until you know how the matter will turn out. For the man will not rest until he's concluded the matter this day. Having expressed his concern for her reputation, he, he sends her home until he can claim her as his bride. And I like that Naomi gets it. She says, hey, you can rest because he's not gonna. You can relax because you can bet he's going to get this done. And I'm reminded that that's how our Lord was and continues to be with us. He would never rest until our redemption was assured. And he continues to pray daily, making intercession for us until it's complete, until we stand before him. You should know, and many of you do, the scripture describes the church as the bride of Christ. So this picture, you see it, you should see it, as Boaz well, represents our Lord and, and as Ruth represents the church and Naomi hey she may even be representing Israel who was used even in her time of suffering and despair and disobedience well God still used all that he gave them the law the word the son who came through them to bring us to him well a couple of snapshots before we can conclude and share in communion tonight. The first has to do with a problem presented by the Sadducees 
related to this whole scene and, and picture. The second has to do with our Lord and Savior's parable. But turn over to Matthew 22 for a moment. We conclude with just a couple quick pictures. Matthew 22. If you've wondered where these things come from, you've read through the New Testament and you're like, where do they get these ideas and what's the deal with this? Well, now you know. It goes back to the law. It was actually lived out with Boaz and, and Ruth. But in Matthew 22, the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, and this is verse 23, they came to him and asked, saying, Teacher, Moses said if a man dies having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. And there were with us seven brothers. The first died after he had married, having no offspring, left his brother with his, or left his wife to his brother. Likewise, the second also, and the third, even to the seventh. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, Whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had her. Now note, it tells you some, something important. In case you were unaware, the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. We see that back in verse 23. So they come and they pose what they consider sort of an irresolvable conflict, a problem that makes the reality of the resurrection or the probability of the resurrection, more of a problem than a solution. Basically, they just say a guy marries, he dies, his brother marries. As we saw, the law made provision for. He dies, the next, the next, the next. Now, what happens in the resurrection? And I love this because these guys were students of Scripture, but they just didn't believe the Scriptures. No, throughout the scriptures, even the portion they accepted and they were kind of narrow in what they considered. Well, we believe this is scripture, but we don't believe that scripture. They were kind of of that mindset and mentality. The interesting thing is that that uh, with all that, Jesus goes not just to, well, well, here's how that works out, fellas. But he goes to the very core and heart of their problem. They studied the scriptures, but they didn't believe the scriptures. So Jesus says, you are mistaken, verse 29, not knowing the scriptures, nor the power of God. What's he saying? You really don't understand what you read. You really don't believe what you read. And you really aren't in touch with the power of God. So... How does he go on? In the resurrection, they neither, verse 30, marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels of God in heaven. Now, that word like is important. I have it circled. Here's why. We're not going to be angels. We're just going to be like the angels. In what way? He goes on to explain. Concerning the resurrection. Oh, for in, in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage but are like the angels in heaven. That's how we're going to be like them. We're not going to be reproducing. We're not going to be married in the same way, having the same kind of physical relationships we have now. But concerning the resurrection of the dead, and he gets to the real issue, the core issue, have you not read what was spoken to you by God saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. What's Jesus doing? He's saying, listen, 
you pose this problem, but the real issue is you don't know the word. You read it, but you don't get it. You don't get it because you don't believe it. And you don't understand and aren't tapping into the power of God. Now, there will be a resurrection. And the Sadducees, well, you can even see it in the word. They'll be sad, you see. Why? Because they will be a part of the second not the first resurrection, not the resurrection to everlasting life. They were unbelievers. Though they had the scriptures, though they were descendants of those who, who God spoke to, angels appeared to, they rejected the, par the very word of God that could have saved them. Well, there's a parable, and I want you to see it before we conclude. It's in Matthew 13. One of the shorter parables are already there and well in Matthew, so easy to get to it. Matthew 13, 44, because this is going to well, relate directly to what's taking place, not just with Boaz and Ruth, but well, what's happened to us. Again, our Lord says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid, and for joy over it, he goes and sells all he has and buys that field. Now, you should know that not all commentators or Bible teachers agree on the interpretation of this parable, but, but let me tell you what I believe, and I think it relates perfectly to what we're considering tonight. Jesus declared earlier in the explanation of the parable of the wheat and tares, right prior to giving this short little parable, that the field is the world. And well, this parable follows then and is in keep, perfect keeping with John 3.16 where we're told God so loved what and who? The world. He gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I believe this parable is telling us Jesus bought the field, redeemed the world so he could have the treasure within Rich has a song that celebrates this reality, the joy of that treasure. There's joy in our Lord's heart when the treasure is redeemed. Listen to Romans 8, 18. I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. And we know the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. What's he saying? Our Lord, for the treasure in the field, if the field's the world and God loves the world, listen, the world doesn't all love him back. But creation itself groans and yearns for that day of redemption. And then here's how he describes us. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, 
It's in 1 Peter 2.9, so don't be looking there. His own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who were once not a people, but now are the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. The picture, Jesus, our kinsman, redeemer. He became one of us. He was willing to lay down his life for us. And then he actually paid the price for your redemption and for mine. He died for your sins and mine, according to the scriptures. He was buried. He rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. It is love for Ruth that drives Boaz to do what he's doing. It was love that drove him to go beyond what the law called him to do. And it is love that will keep him going until the job's done. We love Jesus because he loved us first, and he demonstrated that love by doing the same thing for everyone who places their faith in him. Join us next time as Pastor Sam begins the final chapter in the Book of Ruth. The Calvary Road is a ministry of Calvary Chapel Chico, and you can visit our website, ccchico.com, or download the CC Chico app to contact us and listen to other studies from Pastor Sam. You can also listen to The Calvary Road as a daily podcast by visiting thecalvaryroad.com. We'd love to hear from you. And until next time, may you find grace and peace as your journey takes you down the Calvary Road. And your grace.